Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week I'm very pleased to say we have John Cornwell on the show, and we'll be talking about... everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week I'm very pleased to say we have John Cornwell on the show, and we'll be talking about his fascinating and I think somewhat controversial book, The Dark Box, A Secret History of Confession. I was trained as an early modernist at a fancy university, and I have to say, uh, much the chagrin of the people who probably educated me, I didn't know anything about uh, the history of confession. Um, so uh, I confess my ignorance at the beginning, and I want to thank John for bringing me up to speed on that. And John makes an association in the book, and we'll talk about this, that I had never considered at all, and that is the moment at which uh, a, a priest uh, in the confessional uh, booth or box um, has pretty close contact with young people, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. He has some interesting things to say. Uh, in that vein. So, John, let me first welcome you to the show. Well, thank you. All right. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I studied to be a priest, Catholic priest, for seven years. I belonged to that generation who were recruited for the priesthood when they were in their early teens. I was 13 when um, I was a mass server every morning, and the priest one day asked me, uh, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a priest. And uh, very soon after that, I was introduced to the bishop and I was sent off to a, what was known as a junior seminary from the age of 13 to 18. Then I proceeded to the senior seminary um, for two years where I completed the philosophy of religion um, course. But then I decided that uh, the priesthood was not for me. And I left and I went to Oxford University to study English literature then on to Cambridge to do research. And for a period, I did teaching and more research. And uh, then I decided that the academic life was not to my taste. And I became a journalist um, for about 15, 16 years, mostly on um, a great Sunday national paper here in London called The Observer. Mm -hmm. And then in my mid-30s, I decided that uh, I would like to go back to the academic life and so I studied again and uh, from 1990 to the present I've been at uh, Jesus College Cambridge where I work mostly in the area of history and philosophy of science with some interest also in ethics and religion. Mm -hmm. Well I always appreciate talking to I was going to call you an academic as we would say in the United States but you are I think a little bit like me with one foot in and one foot out all the time but you have world you have experience. And that's, that's an important thing. 
Thank you. Yes. Uh, it's, it's all too often the case that those of us who teach don't, but you seem to have a lot of it. I was going to say that must have been kind of heady stuff at the age of 13 or 14 to meet the bishop. Yes, it certainly was. And uh, he was very kindly. All he did was to dictate a passage from uh, St. John's Gospel for me to write out. And he liked my handwriting and my spelling. <laughs> so there was nothing more than that. But I have to say that uh, the school I went to, which was a long way from home, 150 miles from my home in London, um, was a really quite extraordinary place. And uh, they gave me a tremendous education, particularly in classics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something we don't do at all in the United States. There's no opportunity to do it. I occasionally meet Germans who have done it that have a really excellent classical education, but no, we don't do it, So, um, which is interesting if you think about it. So tell us why you wrote this book. I mean, it, it is a, it's an interesting topic, and, 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 and so I really want to hear why. Well, I, let me put it slightly differently. I can imagine there are some people who are going to be, again, as we say in the United States, pissed off about this book. So, um, I, I, imagine, I imagine they would be, but I hope that the generation um, who are over the age of 50 will recollect the days when they used to go to confession very frequently, mm-hmm. uh, their parents too and their grandparents. Mm-hmm. And it's really out of that that I became very curious as to why today um, people don't go to confession as they used to do. You know, there's a small cohort who do, generally traditionalist Catholics. But on the whole, and uh, uh, we actually have a figure which is put out by one of uh, the most important and uh, efficient Catholic surveys of uh, religious practice in the United States, that it's about 2%. Whereas I imagine that, uh, well, perhaps before 1970, it was closer to 80% Hmm. went to confession regularly. And so it came out of this question, you know, why have people stopped going to confession? And I started asking people, you know, when did you go to your last confession? And I had, you know, some people would say 30 years ago, 20 years ago, just a very few would say, well, in the last two months. And um, so then I wrote an article in the Catholic International newspaper here in Britain, but spread all over the world called The Tablet. And I had hundreds and hundreds of responses to that. And uh, that really got me going on the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it is a fascinating, what they would say, I think in journalism, a good fact that, um, not good in the sense that it's a positive moral thing, but it's it's striking and counterintuitive that the number of people that go to confession has declined so precipitously. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, can you give us the sort of quick and dirty history of of uh, confession from the 1970s to the present? Why did it drop off so significantly? Well, the main thinking, and this comes from uh, people like moral theologians, and in fact, uh, one of the great um, sociologists of religion in America, um, is that who called uh, Monsignor Greeley, who Mm -hmm. uh, alas passed away last year, but is that it was to do with uh, the problem of contraception that uh, many Catholics uh, of, you know, sexually active age um, believed that contraception, the church's teaching on contraception was wrong. Um, And now we all believe as Catholics that if you go to confession with what the church teaches to be uh, a sin, such as contraception, you have to, in your heart, 
promise that you're not going to do it again. And people simply found that just too much. So you found that, therefore, the parents, people of parents' age, started to um, you know, fall away from confession, <clears throat> which meant that their uh, children did as well. Except for the fact, as we all know, um, children, all Catholic children, do make their first confession before their first communion, and it's part of that initiation. But uh, very, very few of them go on to go to confession again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned this. I was, I eat regularly at a um, Catholic canteen that is run on the university where I teach, the Newman Center, it's called, and I saw posters yesterday encouraging people coming in to... Uh, go to confession during Lent. They're very, yep. very interested in this. Yes, and I, I should also say that it, it, I was—I'm from the American Midwest, and I—I I was raised a Lutheran. But my—I um, wanted to say oddly, my sister is a, a, a convert to Catholicism of all things, and her son just had his uh, first uh, um, his first communion. So that was that was very interesting. Um, can we talk a little bit about the the, the history of? Uh, of confession from from the beginning, I wanted to say um, that is it, it is if I understand it correctly, it is an act of penitence, and penitence is one of the um, sacraments, one of the seven sacraments in Catholicism. Can you uh, find its origins for us in the New Testament and take it through to the present very briefly? Actually, you don't have to do it very briefly. You can go on for as long as you like. Well, yes, the, it's, it appears, if you are looking at the evidence from the New Testament, from the Gospels, and from the Acts of the Apostles, that uh, Jesus and his disciples believed in telling each other their sins. That was meant to be a good thing. It's clear, too, uh, from Jesus' own acts and practice, that there was no... Um, liturgy, if you like, ceremonial connected with it. You know, for example, when he forgives Mary Magdalene, it's just, you know, I forgive Mm you. And so out of that comes our notion of the unconditional love of Jesus uh, for us. Um, We see the development of something like confession by about the second century uh, after Christ, where um, we have to remember that Uh, Christians at this stage still believed that the second coming, the end of the world, was imminent, Mm -hmm. could be next week. They thought this quite literally. Uh, So uh, the point was, right at the very beginning, your sins were forgiven you, particularly the sins we inherited from Adam and Eve with baptism. That washed you free of sin. But of course, people in the fullness of time would uh, fall away in various ways. And so... Within the churches, within their congregations, if a person committed a really serious sin, um, like adultery or murder or idolatry, it was deemed that they had fallen away from their congregation. This was sort of a communitarian thing. And so the way back had to be through the community of their church. And so they would have to come as penitents over a long period of time, weeks, months, Uh, saying prayers and covering themselves in dust and ashes. And they would ask the whole community to forgive them. And uh, the community either would or wouldn't. And that was the origins of what we come to know as confession, a very social kind of thing. Um, Well, that 
tended to collapse round about the collapse of the Roman Empire, the late Roman Empire in the sort of second half of the first millennium. And then we see growing up a kind of one-on-one private and individual spiritual direction, which was practiced in monasteries and uh, nunneries in Northern Europe. And this spread during the period of the reconversion of uh, Western Europe. Um, It's not until the 13th century, to to be absolutely exact, 1215, a great council of the church meeting all the bishops under the Pope, that it was... uh, stated that all Christians, that's in the Western Christianity, must make their confession once a year or be excommunicated, even to the extent of not being allowed to be buried in consecrated ground. And so confession becomes a real, really important item and a sacrament recognized with lots of theology around it from that point onwards. And that's the confession that we know right to this day. Mm -hmm. How does it... um how does it develop in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period? When, for example, do we see the first confessional box? Uh, well, uh, excuse me. Um, towards the end of the Middle Ages, um, this is approaching the Reformation, and indeed, very much through the Reformation, we saw a lot of discontent with the practice of confession. Um, first of all, uh, some confessors, uh, too many actually would ask for money and bribery, you know, uh, became part of that corruption. And then on the other hand, there was evidence uh, because the, what actually happened when you went to confession was that you knelt before the priest, sometimes leaning on his lap and uh, he would uh, do a laying on of hands afterwards. So it was a very sort of an intimate affair. And this led in all too many cases to various forms of sexual seduction. Um, and it was mostly women, adult women, um, for, for whom this was concerned. Uh, as a result of the Reformation, um, the Catholic Church um, called a great council, called the Council of Trent, up in northern Italy. And confession was very high on the list of something that which needed to be reformed. And uh, a very great uh, saint called um, Charles Borromeo designed this box that we now know as the confessional box in order to physically separate the penitent from the confessor. So it was uh, like a piece of furniture where you had um, you know, a separate kind of wooden wall with a grill through which the priest could speak and the, con- and the penitent, and uh, they didn't come into contact. And uh, that, that's been, you know, the, that design of confessional box spread right throughout the world eventually. And um, as we all know, it's a sort of great icon. We tend to see it now, you know, in quite a few films. Although the interesting thing is that by the mid-1960s, priests were moving out of that box and make they were hearing confessions uh, more regularly outside of it, you know, sitting uh, in the comfort of an armchair or in the pews of a church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, tell us a little bit about the theology that is um, stands behind confession. I, I have two specific questions. What what is required of the penitent there? What is the required supposed? What is, what is he or she supposed to do in the box? How is she supposed to feel or think? And then uh, what are the requirements of the person receiving the confession, the priest, the, the person that will 
absolve the person of their sins. Okay, well, um, when you go to confession, the first thing you have to do is to tell the priest how long it is since your last confession. Um, you have to have a certain precondition, even before you went in and reached that stage, which was to be seriously contrite, sorry for the sins that you'd committed, and you had to, uh, in your heart of hearts, um, promise God that you were not going to commit them again. Okay, so you, you tell your, the, the period which has elapsed since your last confession, and then you, um, you say to the priest that you are um, sorry for your sins, and then you recite those sins, and you have a list of sins. Um, this has changed quite recently to be becoming much more of a conversation about you know the background of your sins. But throughout the centuries, what tended to happen, I mean, this isn't until relatively recently, the penitent would simply list their sins. And an example would be, you know, I told lies six times, for example. I stole money from, if you were a young person, I stole money from my parents, um, that kind of thing. Um, it's important to recognize that within the Catholic Church, excuse me, <coughs> it's important to recognize that in the Catholic Church, there are also sins which are uh, the breaking of rules. Um, and these were, up till recently, I would say the 1970s, considered to be really very serious, such as missing Mass on Sundays. That was a very grave and serious sin. Um, so that those are the sins. The priest then um, uh, invites you to um, perhaps talk about some of your sins. He may give you some advice. And then he tells you what your penance is. Now, in the past, penances could be uh, tremendously harsh, such as beating yourself or going on pilgrimage or offering large donations to the church, that kind of thing. Um, since the beginning of the 20th century, penances have tended to be just a few prayers, a few Our Fathers and a few Hail Marys. And then the priest uh, proceeds to give you absolution for your sins. Um, in other words, he's acting on behalf of God mm -hmm. and he is raising the guilt um, for your sins. Now, this is extremely crucial and very powerful because um, Catholics um, have believed you know, for many hundreds of years, that what is described by the church as a mortal sin, as a very grave sin, um, can deserve hell for all eternity. Uh, now, you may have committed such a sin, when the priest gives absolution, then that uh, relieves not only the guilt, but also the punishment, the punishment for all eternity. And so what we're looking at here is a hugely powerful thing that the priest is doing. That's a very short course on the theology of the sacrament. Mm -hmm. well, one aspect of it that I don't really understand, especially the uh, scriptural provenance of, is the, uh, the, the penance itself, what the penitent is supposed to do, as, as for example, say prayers, or for example, uh, uh, or, or wear a hair shirt or whatever it is. What is this? What is the basis of that? Because my understanding uh, fr from the, the Gospels is that, well, I just don't find any of that in the Gospels. Why, why did the Catholic Church sort of start to impose these really punishments? Well, 
um, this is a very important question because it was precisely on this question that the reformers that the Reformation mm-hmm. um, ran into problems with had really serious problems because um, the belief of the Protestant reformers was that uh, you know you are redeemed from your sins through faith you know uh-huh. through belief yeah. not through good works of any kind right. um, nevertheless the tradition of being um, uh, penitent in, in the sense of um, actually going through some harsh punishment um, I think is not only you you find this you know throughout many cultures so it's if you like it's a kind of anthropological consideration but it actually also goes right back into Judaism yeah the day of atonement and Mm -hmm. so forth Um, it's also important to recognize I think that there is a principle of reparation, and so quite often the penance is, and and this is much more so today, and was very much so, I think, in early Christianity, that the reparation to somebody for whom you'd done wrong, so for example, if you'd libeled somebody, you know, it was important that you would try to put that right, or if you'd stolen something, you would give it back, and that uh, was seen as part of the penance as well. Mm-hmm. So let's move on just a little bit. One of the things, well, let's talk about um, uh, Pius X. And I don't think most books are going to know who Pius X is. Very important in the book. You spend a lot of time on Pius. So could you tell us who he is and why he plays a, a, a principal role in your book? Okay. I, th- I think the starting point uh, is to say that in the first decade of the 20th century, uh, the practice of confession was... Um, transformed uh, when the Pope of the day who was Pius X brought down the age at which children make their first confession from roughly puberty, that's the age of 13 or 14 down to the age of 7 and not only did he do that but he said that confession should ideally be made frequently, by which he meant you know, uh, once a month if not once a week Um, This, to my mind, uh, represented one of the most um, extraordinary um, experiments ever performed on children in the whole history of the Catholic Church. Um, The reasons why he did it, I think, are quite important. Um, He came onto the throne of St. Peter. He he was elected Pope, in other words, at... uh, um, it's just 1903, so it's right at the beginning of the 20th century. And there's always a tendency in a new century um, to become somewhat millionistic, you know, and pessimistic and wonder, you know, whether this is, you know, we're approaching some kind of, you know, big shake-up uh, worldwide. Pius X, looking out from, you know, Rome um, and the Apostolic Palace where he lived, was very... Uh, aware of the great forces of materialism, socialism, um, relativism, the idea that, you know, one religion is as good as any other. Uh, And all those dangers, um, you know, the force of science and so forth. At the same time, he was aware that within the church itself, um, a lot of um, the faithful had become lax, had become... um, lukewarm and half-hearted in their faith you know they were not attending church so much there's a general falling off and uh, 
there was very little he could do about the forces from the outside, but there was quite a lot he could do from the inside. And he decided on two things, really. One was to reform the seminaries and to bring priests up to scratch, you know, in their discipline. And the other was to advocate to all Catholics that they should go to confession uh, more regularly. And this, this, behind this idea was the theological notion that when you receive the sacraments, you uh, the grace of God is being bestowed upon you, which strengthens you. And the two sacraments that you can perform uh, more than once, um, you know, you're only baptized once, you should only be married once, and so forth, you're only ordained once, but uh, you can go to confession and communion um, as often as you wish. There's, there's no ban on that. But people, of course, have not been going to confession very often. So, uh, his idea was that if you started um, young Catholics at an earlier stage, um, they would uh, get into the habit very, very early, and uh, they would stay within that habit. And so, he, so they were. Uh, it, this actually occurs in 1910 when he uh, issued his great decree on the matter. Um, uh, children must make their confession at seven, and uh, they should go to confession very regularly. Um, now, there were immediate consequences to this. The first was that children would then be instructed in the faith and the meaning of sin and God and God's love and penitence from the age of five or six, because, uh, you know, it's, the instruction takes at least a year to understand the sacraments. And um, it's my belief, very strong belief, that this transformed Catholicism in uh, you know, a very, very serious way because it meant that children were taking on ideas at a very uh, difficult period of moral development in childhood. Um, we need to know more, and certainly the Catholic Church and priests and uh, I think right up to the Pope himself, we need to know more about moral development in childhood. Um, but what we do know, which comes really from the secular world, you know, with uh, great psychologists like Kohlberg and Piaget, is that, uh, you know, children tend to see right and wrong in terms of, of rules and authority. Uh, and the problem has been that those notions about um, sin and God's love and um, forgiveness um, are not revisited later on in a child's life. Um, so there, I think, is the first you know, big consequence that confession became, I would say, infantilized and trivialized at the beginning of the 20th century, um, while at the same time being made um, frequent. And uh, I think that this um, had a, a very profound effect on children. Uh, would you like me to go on to further? Oh, yes, please go on. Yeah, okay. Now, uh, a second important consequence, I think, is that children actually disliked confession very much. I mean, you, it doesn't take much imagination uh, for non-Catholics to understand how a child going into a dark box and um, telling his or her sins to a stranger. And um, we, we have a, a sense of this, first of all, from... Um, poets and writers right throughout the 20th century. There's a whole genre 
uh, of childhood confession, uh, starting with James Joyce mm-hmm. in the beginning of the 20th century, right up to the present. Um, for example, a very popular poet uh, in England called Caroline Duffy says that she felt when she went into the confession, it was like being buried alive. Uh, you have other writers who say, you know, it was like going into a coffin. Um, and so children were, in a sense, you know, oppressed by the experience of confession. But uh, another consequence, and uh, this is perhaps even more serious, is that uh, children um, were therefore um, uh, exposed to priests, many of whom uh, were in many ways immature through seminary formation, which um, had cut them off, you know, from children and ordinary family life. So they were exposed to priests um, in a way that um, sometimes, um, for a significant minority, ended in abuse of children. Now, that's a very big claim, but um, and it's something that's been overlooked, uh, I, I'm sorry to say, by a lot of the investigations into um, the um, sexual abuse of children by clergy in the Catholic Church. But we do know we're getting a much clearer picture through investigative work and also interviews with priests themselves that children were often uh, tested, as it were, for their vulnerability to being abused in the confessional. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it didn't necessarily happen within the confessional box, but it was often the confessional box that was a prelude Mm -hmm. to a relationship outside. Um, And so these are the consequences, I think, um, uh, of um, the bringing down of the age at which children make their first confession. I'd like to talk about both of these things uh, in order. Has anyone ever done a study um, or gone beyond anecdotal evidence about the impact of having uh, children of age seven confess? Do we know how it affects them? Uh, We don't. And I think it's absolutely necessary. And I'm hoping as a result of my book that there will be some very serious work done on this. Um, There are... um, psychologists, child psychologists who have worked on the moral development of children, but I think that um, it has not been related specifically to confession, and uh, since writing my book, I've been in contact with a number of people who've expressed a great interest in this. Um, the um, It applies to a generation um, as I said earlier, from the age of about 50 upwards, because um, confession now has become much more um, a much more gentle thing. Um, before Catholic children make their confession now, um, you know, they're encouraged not to be anxious about it. It's done in public. And um, from the young people I've interviewed, that's people in their early teens, about their recent first confessions, um, it, it's been a, a rather jovial, um, you know, uh, interaction between the priest and the child. And they don't do it ever again. That's the point. Most children <laughs> go to confession, they never go again. So we're talking about something which is historic. But um, I, I think that in view of the fact that this pope 
who, um, in fact, I, I, I wrote to uh, just before the book's publication, and I'm assured that he read the letter. And in fact, uh, a week later, he gave a sermon on confession um, in uh, one of his you know, meetings with pilgrims. Um, there is a move to try to get people back to confession as in the past. And I think that we need to learn from um, the past as to what you know the dangers are. And um, we need to uh, try as far as possible to uh, make confession something which is mature um, and something which is important and seldom and which involves the whole of a person's life and relationships um, rather than the trivialized, infantilized practice that we saw in the past, which could also um, turn into something um, much darker. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that because in my spiritual tradition, I won't be specific. That is how we do it. We do it very seldom, but very thoroughly, <laughs> very thoroughly with somebody else. Um, it was public, did I hear you correctly, that the, that the first uh, confession of a child of seven years old is public? Uh, nowadays, oh. uh, it's public in the, only in the sense that uh, uh, parents are always present hmm. at the first confession and the, they can see the child and the priest. Usually they're sitting on a chair near the uh, altar of the church. So it, it's public in that sense, oh, but of course yeah. it's private between the two. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad that you raised the idea of public confession because um, there's another kind of confession which uh, is reminiscent of the confessions in the um, those penitential uh, ceremonies in the very early church, which were um, social and congregational. And um, what this involves um, is all the congregation coming together and saying an act of contrition um, in public together, um, considering their sins, however, private and mentally, followed by the priest giving an absolution to the entire congregation. Now, this was brought in, it's known as the Third Rite, um, mm. or the Third Ritual. This was brought in by Paul VI in 1976, and it proved hugely popular, and it brought back many, many people to the church. Pastors will tell you this, how you know they hardly had room for all the people who would come, particularly towards the end of Lent. Unfortunately, um, Cardinal Ratzinger, as the head of... Um, doctrinal orthodoxy and John Paul II in 1984 banned this third rite or third ritual mm -hmm. and uh, the reason given was that for serious and grave sins this must be a matter you know between the priest and the penitent and um, that's been very unfortunate and in the huge correspondence I've had uh, uh, as a result of uh, doing my research for this book, um, um, many, many people have written to me saying that, and priests too, that they would like that uh, ritual returned. And so that's a possibility for the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because I know from research that I've done in another connection, there was a Protestant movement 
founded in the late 19th century. It was one of these Protestant movements that was trying to return to the primitive or early church. You know, Protestants are always trying to return to the early church. And um, it was called the Oxford Group. Uh-huh. And they uh, did the same sort of thing. They had what was essentially a public confession. And they had exactly the same experience that you mentioned. Uh, people were, uh, it became very popular very quickly. Um, a lot of people came. Um, and I don't know why it petered out eventually in the 1930s, but they were they had huge crowds of people who wanted to come in and confess themselves. These were Protestants mostly, but uh, confess themselves uh, uh, in front of other people. So it's, it's interesting, powerful thing, I think, doing that. I've never done it myself, but a powerful thing. Uh, just to return to the children for a moment, the seven-year-olds, I mean, I can only imagine from my own experience with my own children that uh, you'd get one of two responses. One uh, would be that they would learn how to lie better. <laughs> and the other would be that they would uh, indulge in a kind of uh, horrible self-hatred, real shame. Because, I mean, I know in my children, I've, I've, uh, I've seen both of those things, uh, a real, really uh, sort of uh, uh, almost despair about themselves, inability to do things as, the, as, as adults would, um, would expect. So I, I don't, I have to call my sister, uh, you know, my, my nephew Ian just did it, I think, and so I should call her to see how Ian did. Um, so let's move on to the the, the second point, and uh, perhaps a more controversial point. You have a very interesting section in the book called "The Making of a Confessor," which I found fascinating. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Well, this again is somewhat historic, although you know recent history, and there's still plenty of confessors. Excuse me. <clears throat> there's still plenty of confessors around alive and working who um, were you know received their formation to the priesthood under this um, auspices um, the um, when one is in a seminary um, the course known as moral theology um, very largely deals with how a priest relates to the penitent in the confessional. And um, also, um, at the very heart of that, is the distinction to be made between a mortal sin, that's a sin which will send you to hell unless it's confessed, and a venial sin, um, that means a milder sin. Um, The uh, training for the priesthood that I received um, depended on um, manuals of moral theology, which uh, dealt with all kinds of sins. I mean, which would include, you know, stealing and violence and so forth. But um, the the central issues were to do with matters of sexuality and family and uh, those kinds of um, ethics which. Uh, dealt with sexuality, um, homosexuality, for example, and so forth. Um, The tendency was to be extremely casuistic, and by that I mean, you know, to um, be very refined in um, how far you can go, as it were, in uh, various ways. But the really quite shocking thing for, in, in retrospect, I'm thinking back now that, you know, we the way we thought in those times and what we were imposing upon um, the faithful and children in particular was that any form of sexual um, 
enjoyment outside of marriage was a mortal sin. Now, this included um, just a, an impure thought, any form of, um, uh, and this was the way children were taught about these matters, uh, touching one's private parts or those of another. Um, and um, I think that this uh, was an obsession uh, on the part of uh, tutors in moral theology, but it's what for generations uh, created a terrible sense of, of guilt and uh, what's commonly known as scruples, by which I mean, you know, the idea that, uh, say, for example, um, by chance, uh, you were to see, I don't know, an, a picture of a naked woman. You weren't deliberately doing so, but um, you'd, you'd simply come across it. Um, this could set up in the mind of children um, that they had committed a mortal sin. Uh, that's just one small example of the way in which this obsession, you know, with uh, sexuality as imposed, particularly on the young, you know, was uh, destined to have, um, you know, uh, really quite serious consequences. Mm -hmm. So do you remember this from your own training that there was a, an emphasis on... I guess, you know, sexual sins of various impure thoughts, adultery, uh, sodomy, that kind of thing. Did you, you spent a lot of time on this? We, we, we did. And um, I think part of that uh, obsession and that um, uh, constant involvement was the difficulty that um, priests had and would have in their lives with maintaining their yeah. status as, as celibates. That's a good point. And, um, the, and, and so I, I think it, you know, when people say, you know, should um, Catholic priests remain celibate, you know, is it their celibacy that has caused, you know, um, the terrible scandal of um, uh, sexual abuse of children? Um, I think that it really comes back to, you know, it, it reflects on the need and uh, indeed the anxiety um, within uh, the priesthood to maintain not simply celibacy but in but purity right to the extent of not even having even a fleeting impure thought mm -hmm. now I'm, I'm saying this I think probably is less so today but um, I think that it was certainly through much of the 20th century, um, it was um, a, a serious problem, you know, within the Catholic Church, and it started actually within the seminary. Um, I have to ask, and I know this doesn't really pertain to Catholicism, but as, as far as I know, and I could be totally wrong, that uh, in the Gospels, uh, matters of sexuality and marriage specifically are dealt with exactly once, and that is in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, don't marry previously married women. And that's it. Uh, I yes. Mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, so, so I'm wondering how they got all this, you know, onanism and sodomy and, you know, I mean, wh wh how do they develop all these, these uh, this sort of very sort of efflorescence of sexual sins? Well, historians of early Christianity um, will tell you that it ar arose out of this sense that the second coming was 
imminent, you know, perhaps within the lifetimes of those early Christians. And that to gain your place in heaven with a certainty, you needed to be like an angel. And Mm -hmm. in other words, totally sexless. Mm -hmm. And um, even though marriage was permitted, um, you know, you had uh, great writers, early Christian writers like Tertullian, who believed that, you know, orgasm, sexual orgasm, you know, stole, you know, spiritual grace from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was the background. But mm-hmm. I think uh, there was a probably a new efflorescence of this in the early Middle Ages when um, it was decided that um, um, priests, you know, within Western Christianity uh, should remain celibate. It's quite mm. late, actually, in the history yeah. of the church, relatively speaking. And um, that had a l- lot of other problems connected with it, you know, which were to do with property and, um, you know, the breakdown of marriages and the problem that, that created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, you know, again, I, I kind of bring this Protestant sensibility to it, and I know that's sort of inappropriate, but I always wonder when I see something like this, a kind of revelation of, let's call it that, to Catholics, and I wonder what it's spiritual or it's scriptural provenance is. I know, I know it doesn't matter for Catholics. Um, so uh, you uh, talk directly in the book about sexual abuse in the confessional box. And I'd like you to speak a little bit about that. And if you would, um, if you're comfortable doing this, to talk a little bit about your own experience. Um, yes. What seemed to happen in by the late 1950s was that confession um, was coming out of the the box, as it were, the confessional box, more and more. It happened only gradually. And it happened, I think, because of, you know, a general sense of liberation, um, which included sexual liberation, um, but liberation of all kinds, you know, music, youth, and so forth, uh, towards the end of the 50s and into the 60s. And um, so the priest became not only the confessor who delivered the sacrament, but often became a mentor and a friend and a buddy. And so confession started to be taken by priests in the privacy of their rooms, or maybe in a car, or maybe out on a walk somewhere. So you had this kind of ambiguity between whether the priest was a counselor or whether he was the confessor. Now, um, my experience of this, uh, and I think um, this was the way it often happened, um, you know, as the series of abuses began to rise from the late 50s through the 60s and so forth, was that uh, a priest in my junior seminary, I was aged about 16 at the time, um, who was very popular, um, he was unlike the other priests in that I believe that he actually was not actively gay, but was by tendency gay, although I wouldn't have recognized that very clearly at the time. Uh, he was very devout and very holy, and therefore one saw him as very trustworthy. Um, he tended to um, be very um, liberal with boys in the sense that he would... Uh, offer them alcohol and sometimes cigarettes and he would play the music in his room and he conducted confessions in his room. He was the only priest on the staff of the junior seminary who did this. 
and uh, he liked to hear a confession with you sitting in an armchair next to him. And on one occasion, uh, during confession, he asked if he could see my penis because he wanted to ensure himself that I wasn't um, having um, swift directions. He he seemed to have a theory that uh, there were certain um, unfortunate people who had a misshaped penis, which would easily, easily give rise to um, erections. Now, as he suggested this, uh, I was immediately alarmed. I thought this is not right. And I simply stood up without a word and I left the room and I never went back. Uh, this priest, um, the following year, was uh, sent away from the junior seminary. Ironically, he was sent to another school as chaplain where there were boys even younger than our boys. And that that's another reflection on the way in which things were done in those days. I mean, not deliberately to, you know, uh, help him foster his... Um, pedophile behavior, but um, simply to move him on anywhere that uh, they could get him away from where he was. Mm -hmm. So that, that is the story, and that's the background to it. Mm -hmm. Was the possibility of this sort of uh, molestation discussed at all when you were in seminary? No, it wasn't. And it's interesting why I didn't go to see the rector, yeah, I was wondering the head about of that. the uh, staff. In the first place, um, a lot of young people um, in those days believed that the seal of confession, that's the secrecy of confession, which must never be broken, applied to the penitent as well as, as, well as to the confessor, hmm. um, which, in fact, if you think about it, is absurd. Um, at the same time, I thought that it would, I would not be believed, and um, I think I was just stunned. Um, although it does reflect, I fear, on the relationship that the priests in the seminary had with us, that there was not a priest that I could go to to um, say that this had happened. Um, it's interesting that a lot of the um, it's interesting that a, a lot of the cases of abuse actually emerged because uh, um, the abused person would tell their parents rather than another priest. Mm -hmm. But I never told my parents. Sure. Did uh, you have the opportunity later in life to share this experience with anyone? Which is to say, did you talk to another Catholic boy about it? Did, did it ever become a topic of discussion? It, it, it only became a topic of discussion many, many years later. I mean, I would calculate uh, 50 years later huh. wow. when I wrote an autobiography called Seminary Boy, which uh -huh. told the story of my period, uh, you know, in the junior seminary. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, fa that's fascinating. I can certainly understand the sense that you wouldn't be believed, especially if it wasn't ever brought up as a possibility. So I, yes. I, can, yes. I can certainly understand that. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I do want to talk about one uh, final thing. I, I, I told you uh, earlier that I'm part of a spiritual tradition in which we confess after a uh, a fashion, and we do it uh, not not terribly regularly, but very thoroughly. And I, I can tell you that I honestly get a lot out of it. I think it makes me um, more spiritually fit. Let's put it that way to remain uh, um, non-denominational. Um, what do you think of confession, and 
and what do you think it does for people and should do for people? Well, I I think that it is a beautiful sacrament, um, and it's a very uh, worthwhile transaction, if we could put it in that way, Mm -hmm. or relationship. And I think that it's rather like psychoanalysis in the sense that um, you are telling um, another person um, who has the spiritual uh, power and is thinking about um, the relationship um, in a spiritual way about your past, your present, and your future. Uh, in, in that sense, it's like psychoanalysis. But the and I, and I also would want to say this that just as um, within the field of psychoanalysis, um, people are conscious that the quick fix doesn't work. So, um, you know, people, you know, have uh, problems, you know, within their lives. Um, they all too easily turn to Prozac or to, you know, these quick psychotherapy deals. And that's really what's happened to confession, that it's become a kind of a quick sin fix instead of what it could be, which is this very worthwhile, uh, seldom um, practiced thing where one can um, go over the whole of one's life and see uh, one's failings in terms of one's relationships and the whole story of one's life rather than a kind of laundry list of sort of atomistic, you know, six lies and six thefts and so forth. I I sincerely think that. And I also believe that it uh, should be done in maturity, you know, when when one has um, reached uh, not simply an age of discretion knowing between the difference between right and wrong, but actually, you know, a certain amount of experience in life and uh, uh, self-awareness and and wisdom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like very much what you say about the, if I could paraphrase or um, try to summarize in a word, the fact that confession is a sort of process that you go through. It's not just something you do once. It stays with you. At least it stays with me after I've done it and I have to work my way through it. It's, it's really a kind of practice. It's not, it's not a singular act. Um, and, and I find uh, that, that when I have done it, um, it, it really does hang with me for a considerable period of time. And it has a kind of, I don't know, ambient effect on me. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's a very good thing as well. And, um, and so what, what is the current doctrine? I said I was, that was my last question, but it's not. What is the current doctrine in the Catholic Church about it? Well, um, I think that the well, the Pope uh, Benedict the Sixteenth two years ago um, issued um, a document in which um, he said that uh, it's something at which we should uh, feel at home. It was still very necessary for grave and serious sin, um, but uh, I think that the Church seems you know, even at present, um, quite exhausted in uh, its uh, appraisal of what confession could be. Mm-hmm. And th- this, this, this was very evident um, a, two or three weeks ago when the, the new Pope, Pope Francis, talked about it. I thought in very sentimental terms, um, not really 
um, being particularly theological about it or having anything new to say, except, you know, confession is a very good thing. You mustn't be frightened of it. You know, don't waste any time. Get back to confession. I don't think that will do. Mm-hmm. No, I think there has to be more at stake than that. Um, I could go on about what is, in fact, at stake, but I, I won't in this uh, forum. And there is a lot at stake. So, uh, we, again, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. Um, could you tell us, uh, as uh, we have a kind of traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Could you tell us about your current project? Uh, yes. I um, wrote a book called Seminary Boy, which took me up to uh, my leaving the senior seminary and um, going to Oxford um, as, a, as it were, a free man. And uh, I want to, uh, in my next book, write about my time as a student and how I lost my faith mm. when I was at, at Oxford and how, nevertheless, through a relationship with a very remarkable man. I, I used to work my way through university by... Um, working as a night attendant in a local mental hospital where I made friends with an extraordinary patient who was uh, a great, uh, something of a mystic and a philosopher of religion. And um, he planted, we, we had debates during the night. He was not very good at sleeping and we had debates <laughs> during the night about religion in the ward kitchen. And uh, I have to say that I, I got in many respects more out of that relationship than I did with my professors in the university itself. Uh-huh. And it laid the seed many years later for my return to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. I'd like to write about that. Yeah, well, that sounds fascinating. And I hope that we can have you on the network again. I bet that really does sound very, very interesting. I've had similar sorts of experiences myself with people who are mentally ill. I won't go again. I won't go into details, but I, I think I know what you're talking about. So uh, today, let me tell everyone that today we've been talking to John Cornwell about his book, The Dark Box, A Secret History of Confession. And I want to say, John, thank you for being on the show. I've been delighted to be on the show. Thank you. All right. And let me say to everybody who listens to the New Books Network, thank you for listening. And I hope that you all have a great week.